Hello and welcome to this midweek podcast special with me, Scott Castanrenny himself. Hello, Al Coates. Who's a bit giddy tonight and we have a special guest tonight as well. Who is? Yes. Hi. Um, Silent. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was my bit. Um, uh, Nikki Rutter. Um, I'm an academic from the Department of Sociology at Durham University. And you're very welcome, Nikki. Thank you for joining us. Yes. So... I've kind of known Nikki online for a long time because we've we've sort of we've emailed and we've talked and we've tweeted and we've um, we've had direct messages for a long time. And you are a doctor, so let's just put that out there. We, we're having a week of talking to geek clever people, and you're another one in the list of geek clever clever people. And you're a doctor. Can you tell us what your doctorate is in, please? Um, so I'm a doctor in sociology and social policy. My PhD used it what's called a glacerian ground theory but it's it's basically a systematic way of approaching the processes that exist in families where there are pre-adolescent children instigating harm child parent violence specifically so that's that's like a real thing isn't it that's like that yeah that's a real niche um you know perfect shoe in for the podcast so what can i ask you um uh from, from a star point of view what kind of drew you into that sort of well, it's quite a murky world. I'll try not to take the entire time of the podcast because it is quite a long story. Um, but I'm cutting to it really. So my son's neurodivergence. I was a teenage mother to an autistic child who did not like mainstream school at all. It was a really harmful environment uh-huh. for him and he was very harmful within it. Um, he was six when he was permanently excluded, I suppose, lots of unlawful exclusions before then and went into a special school quite quickly. And for us, him going into a special school was life-changing for him. He could do full Mm. days at school. It was amazing. It was the best thing ever. And they'd have coffee mornings and things. And I would go to these coffee mornings and speak to other families who'd been through very similar things, but they would talk about how things were great for them now their child was in school but at home things were getting worse and they were then talking about what I had seen or heard about my child doing within school environments but had never done at home for them it was more kind of generalist their child was doing it in both environments and through various long but many years working with various organizations and taking my own journey through Um, community work and working in domestic violence and qualifying as a social worker I was effectively taking this journey along the road trying to understand where do these families go for help because they're like mine they're like my family and through luck potentially like my child's an only child for instance um, I'm based in the community where I know lots of people I have a big support network um, various things I, I just took this journey through maybe community work is where they'll be able to find support and early help services didn't know what they were doing basically and to an extent many still don't domestic abuse services wouldn't take referrals because it wasn't in their remit or funding child safeguarding completely inappropriate so eventually I was thinking well if there's no clear pathway to support what steps could I take um yeah to help families ultimately and for me it's research because that's why I've got a lot of strengths as well I'm quite I'm I'm not good at many things but I'm very good at at, at unpacking things in a systematic way and writing so doing what I can really 
But I mean, that's an excellent answer. And to be honest, I didn't know any of that. So that's really interesting to see that it gets kind of, that it's not just a purely academic exercise. It's, it's born out of that genuine lived experience. And, you know, that you've, it's a path you've walked, not just like heard about. Um, so we invited you on because you've got a specific piece of research out there, which is open access so people can, um, can access it, which is wonderful because so often that research is kind of hidden away behind paywalls and the like. And um, so can you give us a, a brief, uh, it's a very long title, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to make a ham fisted job of trying to explain it. So could you explain the purpose of your research? Cause I found this really interesting and really pertinent for, you know, the community that we speak to. So for that article specifically, um, yeah. and all my work is open access, like that's a value-based decision that, that I make is I, I only will publish with, with publishers that my employer has contracts with to make sure everything is accessible. Um, but this piece in particular came out of my PhD where it became very clear to me that um, there were lots of people interested in my research and because I focus on pre-adolescent children and they had older children, so they had adolescents, that they had really important stories to share across their life course, ultimately their life course of, of parenting. So I talk a lot in the paper about their parenting journey and wanting them to share their parenting journey in, in whatever way they wanted to um, and taking that narrative approach and seeing A, the complexity of family life, of, of what it is to raise children and be a person in the world, but also them as individuals because I'm really interested in the processes that happen within families and how this can sometimes create an environment that creates child-to-parent violence or similar forms of harm. It's really important to actually understand people as complex beings and the mothers um, being the focus of it. A, because I'm a woman and I'm a mother, so I can, I feel... Analyze that in a particular way that I wouldn't be able to represent the voices of men as well, um, because I don't know what yeah. it is to be a dad. I just don't. I can't necessarily attribute certain things or certain experiences to what they're sharing. Um, but also, there's there's this social element of mothers' identities becoming subsumed under the identity of their child. And in this research, it was really important that there were a vast like. There were only six mothers in the research it is small, but it's deep. And we have um, adoptive parents. We have parents, birth parents with neurodivergent children, adoptive parents with neurodivergent children, um, birth parents with neurotypical children. So a real mix of, of different complexities, I suppose, in terms of things that people with neurotypical birth children don't necessarily need to consider along that journey but also that these are complex fascinating women with whole lives outside of their parenting stories it's not everything they are it is everything they are to be a mother but equally it's not and I wrote this paper particularly around trying to unpack that we talk about adolescent parent violence quite often conceptually or in policy as though it's an extension of adolescents um, not wanting to do what their parents tell them to do. 
and avoiding so mm. many of the, the nuanced um, events that happen within families. So that this paper, in a very small way, I was hoping to add some discussion around the complexity of actually, we might be capturing the adolescent experience in the way that parents are talking about it, but actually they're talking about it from much younger in a whole life course, often till adulthood. And mothers might be identifying themselves as mothers but also they have all these other roles outside of their mother-child relationship hmm. um, i've got lots of questions but scott i'm um, whether you're often i just talk over you so do you want me are you happy for me to ask questions <laughs> <laughs> like i could generally stop you i mean come on um no, the only thing i was going to say was i did because i'll send the link to it and, and I, I read the profiles of the people that you um, spoke to and and you're right they do have their own you know experiences the professions you know I, I just I was really I was I wasn't shocked but I was just very surprised to see that kind of experience explained which I think is um, for me unusual but then I wouldn't be somebody who would read, read a research paper if that makes sense because that's not my you know that's not where I sit um, but I just thought it was really interesting that you kind of really went into kind of explain who these people were because i think that mm -hmm. you know sometimes we 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 think of you know um people who are maybe in poverty or um who've had really bad experiences in their own childhood um you know and and copy behavior and all that sort of stuff we kind of assume that's that's the kind of people that are actually being parents to these children so i just I just wanted to point that out really because i thought it was really good thank from you. my perspective anyway nikki so thank you <laughs> And you won't hear from me until the end. That's <laughs> it. Goodbye. Oh, sure. <laughs> but uh, no, it just, I mean, my, I guess my first question was in terms of it being about women, and that makes perfect sense. But I, I was sort of reflecting, and Scott, I mean, I'm conscious that you're talking to two men about women's experience. So, you know, yeah. my experience is only as an observer. Um, and, but also, we, I mean, we get, uh, Scott probably still does get a lot of people coming to them, them and telling them, sharing their experience. And it's predominantly women sharing their experience of really difficult, difficult home environments with children with really complicated needs, but also very complicated behavior. Um, so I, from my point of view, it was just really uh, quite refreshing to see that, that being sort of the real high, the real focus and sort of acknowledging that this, you know, this parent blame often so often washes up at the doors of mums. Um, and so, is I mean, can you sort of explain more about that? Because you, the, one of the first key points was, you know, the, the compounding issues of violence, mother blame and stigma. I thought that was a fantastic opening sort of phrase in the, in the research. So a lot of it, um, I suppose, comes down to what we understand socially as well. And I, in the paper, I talk about parental determinism. But actually what I'm talking about is mother yeah, determinism. Mothers experience violence. Statistically, they are more likely to experience violence, but also um, the, that idea of the parent determinism comes to the door of mothers. You've molded this child into clay the wrong way. Something you have done has created this, and mm. that doesn't really seem to matter whether that child is fostered or adopted or in some cases a stepchild uh, step as well, and they're a step-parent. It is the, the mother. And then you have this element of the stigma, which is the external stigma, and it is the parent blame. 
but so much of that comes back in terms of internal stigma and mothers having this um, repeated message of something you've done it's something about your parenting it's something about the way that you're engaging with your child that is the problem how can you possibly how could anybody possibly have those message consciously or or subconsciously being given to them and not internalize some of that in some way um mm. it, it's still very much conceived that that it that the child is made by the mother whether that's literally, whether that's figuratively, but culturally and socially, that's very much where that message comes from, which compounds all of those yeah. additional issues when they're experiencing violence and harm from their child. I mean, that's interesting because I think we, as a social worker, that there's often a presumption of parent, if there's a problem in the home or there's a problem with the child, there's a, there's a presumption of a parenting deficiency. But that interesting that you're saying it's more than that, that they are they're the people who've molded the clay. And that's a really interesting way phrase, isn't it? That but that is very descriptive of how perhaps we do see the role of mothers as well. So is that a stereotype amongst professionals about the roles of mothers when we're thinking about the diversity in that group? I think stereotype's a good word because we know how flawed they are. Um but yeah, I would say that is stereotype, particularly and particularly say giving the example of social workers there, and as Scott is there with their FASD um, in in the background within there, is we know that so much of a child's neurology, of the way that they first engage with the world now, we know after decades of research that actually what happens in utero, that doesn't necessarily mean because of what the mother has done actively, but it could be experiences that she's had, it could be domestic abuse, it can be illness. We know that impacts on a developing fetus, um, but, but the development of a baby so why is it that so much of social work practice is still then attempting to capture what happens when the child is born and what the mother has done wrong then? Or once the child is placed with um, a foster parent or an adoptive parent, as though we've just started afresh with this child and it's now your responsibility to mould them into clay. I think the stereotype is like the ideal um, terminology for that actually is because it's so flawed and yet it's so embedded in how practice policy and just everyday life we think of well they should be fine now they they're in a safe place they're fine now they're in a b and c and that's just not the case like we're always growing and learning we do it forever it's a life course thing it's it's for our whole existence as human beings in the world um, and to expect that mothers are to blame because of certain things that social workers perceive may have happened in the six months a child might have been placed with them or the 16 years that they've lived with the child, takes away that these children are also human beings living in the world, engaging in lots of sensory and emotional and relational components to what it means to just be a person. They're not there mm. just with the mother, they're there with a whole host of things. It, I mean, it's it's kind of it's 
it's a really interesting read and um there's lots of aspects about it that really sort of rang true of my own experience and probably um i don't know whether maybe they rang true of yours but one of the ones was um that actually help seek you I've, i'm just quoting it but it says help seeking behaviors which was from parents mums uh, were often met with denial avoidance and parent blame from professionals unless they were familiar with the mother through her professional identity first so what was that because that i was thinking oh well that's really interesting so that if they were pre there was a pre-existing relationship they kind of they then fell into this kind of easy easy blaming kind of role yes so the pre-existing relationship needed to be either they had directly worked with the mother in in a service capacity um so they'd worked in a multi-agency way with another family um or it could be that they'd had a colleague who had worked and therefore would vouch for that person's um reliability as a narrator of their own story they could still be a professional um and i talk about this in other settings um for some of the examples and I've talked about it in other work that I've published, but it wasn't clear until I analysed this. And when I'd analysed this data, it suddenly made lots of analysis I'd done previously, like, oh, hang on, that actually explains other interviews that I've done. Um, so you could be a professional with 10, 15 years experience of working with young people. But if you'd never worked directly with the practitioner overseeing your case, or you hadn't worked with any of their colleagues directly, the experiences were invalidated. They weren't recognised. It was, it must be something you're doing. We'll send you on a parenting course first. Or it must, or or, or just minimising it to, well, all kids do that, don't they? Or that kind of language. It was only really validated from the very beginning if they knew one another in a professional capacity. Mm. See, I find that very interesting because now I'm thinking over the years as as in my experience and thinking over the years and i'm not a social worker but i've always been seen if i've been at work with people as a professional um and i'm even thinking back to like very early days and you know having chats with people about behaviors and stuff like that and and you're absolutely spot on with that because there was we were we i mean we were told we had to go on a parenting course but this was before they they had developed them to you know to think about taking into account trauma and you know all the things that we know now, and it was a Webster Stratton, the very original Webster Stratton one, like in two thousand seven or something, and I was like, no, we're not doing it because we do it, we do it already. And I spoke to a friend who's a social worker and who I worked with, and she went, why this? Why, you know, that's that's not appropriate for your family, blah blah blah, blah all this sort of stuff. So that just actually makes perfect sense and it can affect i guess the support as well that people need and can't get because oh you're not doing anything wrong you know the, whatever whatever the responses were i don't know but you know that's quite that could be quite damaging couldn't it and you could see it um in terms of when they were talking and i touch on this in the paper as well it, in terms of the type, like the the speed in which they accessed appropriate support as well. So having that, oh, it can't be your parenting, so it must be something else. Okay, we'll put in a referral to CAMS, we'll do some assessments, we'll work with your family, we'll put together a risk assessment. 
compared to the other families who, I mean, in two cases had their children removed from their home because it wasn't safe for them to be in the home any longer um, for anybody. So that they've just been left and left and left in crisis and minimized and their experiences um, met with denial or blame because it had been take it took so long to respond to it in any appropriate way that recognized even their expertise as parents like I cannot keep my child safe should be enough in my opinion mm. and I do appreciate that there's systems and there's processes and there's lots of barriers to access and support generally but th- those who knew the professions directly because they'd worked within them or worked with them alongside them did not see those barriers in the same way yeah wow this is fascinating because i was reading something else from a different uh, from another academic um <clears throat> from 2017 in terms of grandmothers and uh, mothers so it was, it was kinship and all kinds of things in terms of child to parent violence uh, and there was this phrase that bounced off and it really dovetailed with what you were saying and it said um that that mothers were that to disclose child to parent violence effectively means accepting at least the possibility that judgments judgments will be made about one's ability to parent, and that's just not an easy thing. So that that dovetails perfectly because they're saying that people don't come forward because they sort of almost you have to admit, or you have to accept the fact you're going to be judged. Whereas if you've got that pre-existing relationship, then that that's going to oil the wheels. I don't know what how to use that, or it's going to take the sting out of that that people go oh, well uh, yeah i know susan or i know janet she's she's all right she's she's okay she's okay she'll do but that she's fine you know you know we go out drinking so she must be <laughs> fine you know and she's she, oh bless her she's but that that's i mean that's the worst possible fear isn't it that actually people who if you know people everything's going to be okay well that's a bit that's a bit naff isn't it really I think it's quite sad because nobody goes into these kinds of helping professions, do they, wanting to put people in these boxes and yet somehow that's what's happened, that that they can only view, mm. in, in this piece of research, they could only view mothers as mothers. That's all they could see them as, that they are mothers, that their role is to build the child out of clay and if that something has happened that doesn't with how we can see children should present then there's something wrong with the mother that's the only narrative that worked for them and not having either the space or the opportunity or the the skills potentially to be able to step back and go actually let's look at the bigger picture here let's sit and talk with somebody and actually find out what what they think is happening here it's just putting the people into the little boxes of of this must be what happening because this is my like schema this is what I understand that motherhood and childhood should be. Um, I mean, you'd, you'd say you can't speak to the experience of dads, but I, I think that, um, and I don't want to take away from your, I don't want to kind of then start to talk about something you don't feel comfortable talking about, but I was just, I was thinking about your experience, Scott, and my experience of Scott, and that feeling of um, seeking help and getting blamed. It's just, it's, I know you've, You've had your own experience with child parent violence. I've had my experience, but a genuinely awful experience of seeking help, but then knowing that the inevitability that it's, you're probably not going to get it. Is the conclusion then that, that people are not, that it's massively underreported? Is that, am I 
I would make a rubbish academic because that's probably a, a bad conclusion. Um, that wouldn't necessarily be the conclusion of my work, but what I would say is my work supports other people's work that has made this conclusion. That's why you're a doctor. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's and this is very an academic response, but I just think there's so much more we need to know. Um, and I know you've you've spoken multiple times around kind of the language and, and the way that this is conceptualized or viewed and the way people talk about this experience might not be viewed the same way or interpreted the same way um, when they're trying to communicate it through teachers or early help practitioners or social workers. Um, so I do feel like it is getting reported but I don't think it's being recorded necessarily in the right ways. Oh, so what? how do you think it is being recorded then? Well, in the light of your research. So for instance, of the, of, of the six mothers that I um, spoke to, one of them was the um, older mother. Um, I think I called her Rachel in the research. Um, and she talks about how there'd been exploitation in her experience and her son was um, mm. harming the, her husband rather than herself as the mother. Um, and those experiences, there was police involvement, but the police involvement was relating to substance misuse. It was relating what we would term now as extra familial harm. Um, so it was being reported as he was taking drugs and he was stealing and he was loitering and he was trespassing. Now that was all coming around connected to this. So she was seeking help, but she wasn't seeking help for violence. She wasn't seeking harm for any form of harm like that. She was seeking help for substance misuse. She was seeking help for um, theft and, and those kinds of events because her feeling was that if those things weren't happening, she wouldn't be experiencing the harm in the home. But if someone had ever sat down That's with really her and talked her through that, just tell me about your experiences, she would have talked about the violence, but she never talked about the violence because she was talking about the other forms of harm. Mm. That's, that, again, that's really interesting because so often there is this like ball of spaghetti of issues, isn't there? That and um, you know, school of refusal and all of those kind of really complicated things. And and so, do you find that that <clears throat> mothers, parents, um, that they have a kind of a hierarchy of issues? Do professionals have a hierarchy? Do parents have a hierarchy? And CPV sort of sits differently for different people in different places, depending on the issues? Oh, that's a fascinating question. <laughs> Thank you. And on that bombshell. <laughs> um, because it will be different for everyone, won't it? Like if you're a professional who has a special interest in child-parent violence, this is going to be way up there on your hierarchy and it's going to be something that you're always considering in practice. But if, if you're see a parent in the example that I gave, who's also experiencing theft and, and mm. those kinds of things that the priority for her was she didn't want her sons. Like every family is going to have different thresholds. Um, like when I kind of introduced it at the start and said how I've kind of been adjacent to child parent violence work 
although never fully in it um, when my child moved into a special school. But there's similar elements there. Um, because your priorities, and for me, I had an only child, would my priorities have been different if I had three children, for instance? My priority yeah. was I need to get him into the correct school to meet his needs in my yeah in my circumstances and that was fine but if I got him into a school that met his needs and I had multiple children and he was then coming home and becoming distressed or agitated or frustrated and harming other children in the home my priorities would have been completely different it's so different for every family based on the family makeup the context the capacity the knowledge base and it's going to be the same for professionals mm. as well again that's all my answers are very long-winded and very academic with me <laughs> basically saying you just don't know it's different for everyone which is a bit rubbish i do accept well no i don't think that's fair i mean i think it's not but i think it reflects the complexity of the issue that we say cpv but it that covers a multitude of manifestations and underlying risks and causes, how that plays out in homes. And I, I'm always, the thing that always really struck me, and it seems to be a one theme that I always I seem to come back to, is that parents absorb, however, or carers, parents absorb so much until it reaches a, until it spills into other children. And the whole family becomes at, at risk. Yeah. And then they feel they have to act. And that's of, often the kind of the spark that means they have, they call the police or they call children's social care or they tell school or they tell someone, anyone. Um, but, that's, but again, that I'm just reflecting on the work I did with uh, Northumbria Police where they gave us their, their police call-outs. And again, it was, off the top of my head, I think it was exclusively women who called the police. Yeah, the one time um, I read it was all women. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's we're we're out of our depth, aren't we, Scott? There's, what with us being men and all. <laughs> well, there's something in there. <laughs> <laughs> or being useless. Well, there is that. That wasn't a question. No. Um, so, my feelings about academic work is that this is fantastic. But what are you going to do with it? I mean, is this is there a way of getting this into the hands of the right people? Who are the right people, and what are you can do with it? That's a that's a horrible question. Sorry. Um, well, it is it is a interesting question though. So I'm currently um, funded to do some work, some follow up work from this um, on the um, ESRC, so Economic Social Research Council, have funded York and Leeds University on what's called catchy title, Policing and Vulnerabilities Futures Research Fund catchy um yeah peppy. peppy and i'm like have i actually got that in the right order possibly not but anyway um i've got an early career development grant from them which will be kind of another stage based on some of some of the things that were explored here where i'll be working with or i've started now um with working with some collaborative partners um doing it around working with parents and children instigating this form of harm as well um i do do a lot of work with the young people involved in this form of harm to look at their experiences of help seeking 
going back to this research of what were the barriers, what were the positives, who responded well, what does good look like? Um, and then reviewing, actually, let's get all of the people in the room who are relevant to this. So PCSOs, policing, um, forensic CAMs, regular CAMs, education, and help getting support from the ESRC around getting those people on the table to share all of this information with them, policy briefings, um, as well as kind of looking at what would pathways look like if they were created by the families experiencing this form of harm. If we were to start from scratch and create it again, what would that look like? And then moving on to, okay, now we know what it could look like. How do we make that at least feasible mm. going forward? Um, and that's really interesting because, again, we're um, part of the stuff we're doing, supporting families, and we talk to a lot of families. And we're not a support service at all, are we, Scott? Well, Scott might be. If you want if you want help. In my day job, job yes, but not in, not in the public chat. No, definitely not. Well, we, but we do get people who come on to us. Um, but thinking about the interfaces that people in, you know, the, how people interact with services and the support they get and the, the knowledge of the practitioners and actually where the expertise lays and the pitfalls, all of that stuff's really important, isn't it? And that's encouraging to know that you're kind of, you're, you're beavering away with that. Now, are there any questions that we didn't ask that you were hoping we would ask? That's my trick question at the end. Yeah, that is. It's a bit of a big question. Um, I was just going to butt in there and send an article yesterday for the Irish Examiner, uh, something that's popped up about maybe six to eight months ago. But again, so there was a, a, an article on Thursday last week. And it's, um, as we were just talking about the support there, called Parent Line in Ireland. And they received over 2,000 calls to parents um, to the parents helpline over violent and aggressive behavior um and uh that was in 2022 so that was a whole year in 2022 and a population of six million so you know that's 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 a lot that's a lot of calls I, but they've got somewhere to ring you know there's there's you know um and i'm just not sure what there is i mean you know Alan and I have spoken to about this many times in the past, and I've specifically said, you know, when we were experiencing it, the first thing that we did was ring the police because that seemed like the logical thing to do in the hope that a family liaison officer might visit who might be a little bit more understanding than trying to criminalise my child because we don't know what the underlying issues are. But I think the fact that there's something like that available, you know, don't get me wrong, I don't think they were saying, "Oh, we got too many calls in 2022." I think they were saying, "You know, this is this is this is a big thing, and it's you know, it needs to be something that's like brought to the public eye to be able to kind of help parents and 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 children actually um, to be able to kind of you know get to the bottom of of." It's fascinating. fascinating. Not in a good way, but it's fascinating. Al keeps cutting out. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what's happening. It might net on the Brits. Actually, this this going. might be the most mellowest podcast I've ever done. All about the co-regulation. Co-regulation. It just feels quite the calm to the group. Yeah, that's quite chill tonight. Yeah. <laughs> It's good, it's good, it's good. But no, back to your previous point. 
I don't think there was any um, particular questions um, that I wanted to be asked. It's just lovely to be here. I've wanted to be here for a long time. Oh, to see Al, is it? Yeah. yeah. Well, both of you. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully we haven't disappointed you. Um, we normally do a false ending, so we can talk to you afterwards. So we're going to do that if that's okay. Um. Don't so, we are podcasting tricks to the general public who listen. Thank you. I'm, I'm, well, I might edit that out if I had time. Yeah, I was going to say. Probably do thank have. you. I will I'll edit it out. Um, so no one will know. So, Nikki, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And um, it's really exciting to see the work that you're doing. And um, I think it's been really fascinating. And um, you've got such a unique perspective on it. And I think that your specialism is really needed. And especially that you are kind of, you are you're not kind of taking a criminal perspective, which I think some of the academic stuff can do. You've, you've got a very much a human touch and it's born out of your own experience. So, so really excited, really looking forward to whatever you produce next. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll have you back on the show. Most definitely, yeah. Thank, Thank you, Nikki. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>